the US tax rates on capital gains are normally lower than Australia. And that, you know, that's a, a real key planning point clients would really think about. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. episode 348 of Text Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When you relocate from the US to Australia, two things you need to watch out for are CGT and 401k retirement funds. Let's cover 401k in the next episode and today let's talk with Bradley Murphy and Darren Casserole of Murphy Tax in Sydney about the CGT implications when you move from the US back to Australia. And whatever we discuss with respect to Australian tax will apply to relocations from other countries as well. So for Australian tax, disregarding any treaties, for Australian tax, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. So here are Bradley Murphy and Darren Casserole of Murphy Tax in Sydney, starting with a general overview of the US-Australian tax treaty and then discussing our friend Bob who is moving from the US back to Australia. The interview starts with Bradley Murphy and then around the 15-minute mark, Bradley hands the microphone over to Darren. And sorry, one more thing, my normal microphone went on strike that day, so I had to use a very plain headset, which doesn't sound great. Sorry about that. So here are Bradley Murphy and Darren Casserole about the CGT implications when you move from the US back to Australia. First and foremost, what the tax treaty does, it obviously allocates taxing rights to either Australia or the US and aims to alleviate double taxation between the two countries. And that normally you know, does work quite effectively with most tax treaties. The US is a little different for a number of reasons. At the individual level, it has this savings clause, which says that well, the IRS says, you know, if you're a US citizen or a green card holder, <laughs> basically you don't care about the treaty, you're still paying tax in America. And that means that, you know, most countries would tax on a residence basis. So obviously, if you're residing in Australia, you would normally not be taxable still in your home country on, on most income. The US is different because of that savings clause. You still need to report your income and you're still taxable on your worldwide income in the, in the United States. That's one example. Can I actually interrupt you on that one? What you mentioned, the savings clause, can I just very quickly go to the DTA and understand what this savings clause looks like? I assume it's in Article 1. And while we are looking for it, can I just ask you something else? Do you use CCH? I know. Yeah, we, we do use CCH as needed. It's funny, right? I guess the, the complexity, as you'd be aware, with the tax treaty sometimes there is no answer sometimes, you know, on a sort of CCH platform or even with the ATO on the rulings database. So sometimes you get these situations where it's quite technical and there's no sort of answer that's sort of publicly available. So um, but to answer your question, yes, we do use CCH and we do use um, other research platforms. If you go to Article 1, personal scope, is that where I find the savings clause? That's exactly right. Article 1, Clause 3 is a savings clause which effectively says, notwithstanding the tax treaty, the US retains its right to tax its citizens and long-term residents, so green card holders, subject to a couple of clauses in the treaty. Because you're driving or walking, let me just very quickly read you Article 1, Paragraph 3. 
the savings clause. And I forgot to ask why it is called a savings clause. It seems to be a bit of an odd name. But let me just very quickly read you what it says. It starts with the following phrase. Notwithstanding any provision of this convention, and as you know, notwithstanding means in spite of. So in spite of any provision of this convention, and so that basically means whatever is said in the rest of this treaty, this paragraph, this savings clause stands. There's only one paragraph that can alter this savings clause, and that is paragraph four. So paragraph three says, notwithstanding any provision of this convention, except paragraph four of this article. And so now here we go. A contracting state may tax its residents and who is a resident and who is not a resident is determined in Article 4 of the treaty. So a contracting state may tax its residents and individuals electing under its domestic laws to be taxed as residents of that state. So you are the a resident as per Article 4, or you might elect under domestic laws to be treated as a resident. So a contracting state may tax its residents and individuals electing under its domestic law to be taxed as residents of that state and, and this is really important now, and by reason of citizenship may tax its citizens. And so this is purely the US, of course, because Australia doesn't tax by reason of citizenship. But it, so it says a contracting state may tax its residents and by reason of citizenship may tax its citizens as if this convention had not entered into force. So this paragraph saves the US right to tax its citizens on worldwide income even if they're not residents. And that's probably also why it is called the savings clause because it saves a right the US claims for itself. So that's the savings clause in Article 1, Paragraph 3. There is another sentence in Paragraph 3 about citizens who have renounced their US citizenship and it discusses that the US has the right to come after them for another 10 years if that renouncement of citizenship was due to avoid tax. And I can't think of any other reason why somebody would renounce their US citizenship apart from avoiding tax, but you know, that's a different topic. So it basically means whoever renounces their US citizenship is not free from the IS until another 10 years have passed, but that's a different topic. Let's put that aside. So the savings clause in Article 1, Paragraph 3, reserves the right of the US to tax its citizens on its worldwide income, even if they are not residents. So back to Darren and Bradley. What we find in that context with the treaty, like if you've got a US citizen, normally they're still obviously paying tax in America and still reporting income in America, but the treaty allocates who taxes that income first, which is quite important. So you know, if they're residing in Australia, working in Australia, Australia will tax the employment income first, with a credit in America. And that's a real purpose of the tax treaty in the context of an American citizen. Straightforward one would be property. So, real, so an American citizen has a property, say, in Australia. Australia would tax the property first, and there'll be a credit in America for the Australian tax paid. Yes, that always confuses me. You know, it's a little bit like the chicken and the egg. Both countries give a foreign income tax offset or a foreign tax credit for any tax you pay in the other country, but which country gets the tax? And you are saying it's based on the source. So if the employment is sourced in Australia, Australia has the taxing rights, and then the taxpayer pays tax in Australia and then receives a foreign tax credit in America. And if the employment income is sourced in the US, then the US has the taxing right and there's just a FITO in 
Australia, correct? And then the same with where the property is sourced and I assume also then the same with business income, then it comes down to where basically whether you have a PE or whether you have a US trade or business, you know, it's it's basically coming down to that, isn't it? You can't just say one country per se has the taxing rights. You basically need to look at each income and see where the source is, correct? Correct. That's a good summary. Exactly. Mm. Yep. It does create some particular mismatches, which we can speak about. And it's more confusing with the US because with the US citizen or green card holder, you basically have tax residency in both countries if the person is a tax resident in Australia. And hence, that makes it very confusing. Whereas with other countries, it's usually a lot more straightforward because you have tax residency in Australia or in the other country. So you just have tax residency in one country usually. And then you usually just have withholding tax on any income that is sourced outside of that country, correct? Correct. That's right. Yeah. Whereas in America, you basically, you know, you have tax residency in both countries and hence it gets confusing. Exactly, exactly. And there's some, there's a whole bunch of sort of pitfalls that we can talk about as we go through the particular questions too. I think just one other point we see um, on the high level on the tax treaty with America is obviously there's US state tax that, that applies. Now, the tax treaty does allow credit for US state taxes paid. And obviously every state has a different rate of tax and some US states don't have state tax, um, which is handy. But the unfortunate ones, or fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, living in say California or, or New York, that US state tax rate can be up to 12 to 13% of their income, which is obviously very high. Now, the US states don't give a foreign tax credit for Australian tax paid. So, this can cause a lot of issues. Like, for example, if you had a, a US resident living in California that sold an Australian property, they would get a credit at the federal level in the United States to offset the Australian taxpayer at the federal level, but not at the state level. So they have that additional you know, 12% liability in America plus the Australian tax. So the effective tax rate on that can be, can be very high. Yes, and it is because the uh, double tax agreement only applies to federal taxes. So the, the double tax treaty applies to both federal and state taxes. So in Australia, Australia will give a credit for the US federal tax and the American state tax. It's just that the states in America don't recognize a tax treaty. So obviously the, at the federal level, they do, but the states don't give a credit in America for the Australian tax paid. Good point. And also when we say... In Australia, you receive a, a, a FIDO for any U.S. state taxes you pay. Of course, it's only income state taxes or state income taxes you pay. Any other taxes you pay that are not directly linked to income, you don't get a FIDO for. So, for example, in California, when you pay a flat franchise tax for an LLC, for example, you wouldn't get a FIDO for that because it's not linked to income, Correct. That, yes, correct. Exactly. Yep. It needs to be an income tax or a identical or similar tax. So in that example, yeah, it likely wouldn't qualify. Good. But branch profits tax would qualify because branch profits tax is a percentage on income, correct? Correct. So under the, the treaty, branch profits tax is actually reduced to 5% under the DTA with the US rather than 30% normally, um, which is you know quite handy per Article 10.8. I think it is 10.8. That is right. So branch profits tax is effectively recognized in 
in both countries. Yeah. Question in Article 1. The uh, paragraph 4 basically just says that the DTA can't take away any advantages. It can't take away rebates, credits, etc., anything that benefits you. But that's what Article 1, paragraph 4 is about, correct? So... Yeah, so effectively, um, Article 1.4 says that effectively that, that savings clause, you know, that says that America was still taxed its US citizens irrespective of the treaty doesn't apply to various clauses like the mutual agreement type clauses in the treaty. So basically what that says, that, you know, the mutual agreement procedure between the US and Australia, if you had to go and actually discuss it between the US and Australian authorities as to who gives the credit, that savings clause doesn't impact that procedure. The particular question you're asking is a good one, and that's right. So effectively, the tax treaty can't override the domestic law to give you a worse outcome. So if the domestic law has a lower rate of tax, that holds true. So an example might be interest withholding tax. Like certain, There's certain circumstances where there's no withholding tax on interest coming out of America and Australia. Um, even though the treaty says it's capped at 10%, you still ignore that 10% and say like you apply the, the 0% withholding per the American domestic law. And that might be from a US government body, from certain US banks, bonds, etc. Did I answer your question? Yes, yes, you did. The last question before we come to our exit tax questions is the um, tiebreaker rule. The tiebreaker section, so Article 4 looks at where you have a dual resident taxpayer who's a resident both in America and Australia under the respective domestic laws. Okay, so they satisfy the American substantial presence test or they're a US citizen and they're also an Australian tax resident under the Australian domestic law. And that's where, for the purposes of the treaty only, that tiebreaker test looks at who or where are they resident. And it's effectively only, so that the tax treaty of America only has an individual tiebreaker test, doesn't have a company tiebreaker test. Now for individuals, it's basically a three-pronged test. The first one is where does the individual have a permanent home available to them? If they have a permanent home in both countries, where is their habitual abode closer? And if it's in both countries, the third test is where is their social and economic ties closer? Now this test is really important, particularly for Australians going to America on say an E3 visa, they're going there for, for say less than two years, where well, they will still remain an Australian domestic tax resident under the Australian law, but they're also an American resident. So that's when that tiebreaker test is really important to look at um, who gets first taxing rights. And, and so for, for example, for employment income, that's where it's really important. So if they're moving to America for less than two years on an E3 visa, they would pay tax in America only on their employment income, you know, assuming they have a rental lease in America and they're renting out their Australian home or don't have accommodation in Australia. That's when it really comes into play. And have you ever wished that we would have a tiebreaker rule for entities? Yeah, most treaties have a effective management tiebreaker clause mm. where you've got dual resident companies. The United States one does not. So effectively says that if you have... So the situation where you have a US LLC that's controlled from Australia. So Australia says under our central management and control rules, it's an Australian resident company. The treaty doesn't address that situation. It just says, America says it's a resident in America. Australia says it's a resident in Australia. 
there's no tiebreaker test there, which to answer your question does cause some issues, <laughs> a lot of issues. So now relocation from the US to Australia, so inbound. So I guess like firstly, relocation from the US to Australia, obviously during COVID, there's a lot of expats that come back to Australia during the COVID period. So there's been a huge amount of expats coming back to Australia in the last two years, which has created all sorts of issues, I guess, from a tax perspective. And look, I guess the first thing we look at when you've got someone coming to Australia is tax residency. And when does that date actually start? Um, it's normally the date they land in Australia with the intention to stay here permanently. So in that situation, they'll be a part year resident. So from the date they actually land in Australia, that's the day in residency date from that point. Now, I guess during COVID, there were situations where you had expats back here temporarily for a number of months. You know, they're sort of stuck in Australia, if you like, for sort of up to six months or even 12 months. And that's always a lot more vague in terms of where or when does residency start. But I think it's safe to, assume, safe to assume normally it's the date they come back to Australia on that date so that they'll be a part year tax resident from that day only, not the full income year, which is, which is also quite important to recognise. Didn't the ATO issue a waiver where they said if you are stuck in Australia because of COVID, your tax residency won't change, correct? They did. That's right. They put out some public guidance saying that, you know, if you're stuck in Australia, you can't leave due to COVID. You know, the Australian government won't allow you to leave or you can't return to your home country. Then you won't be a resident, assuming nothing else changes. <laughs> But once you make the choice to stay in Australia, um, even though you can leave, then you, you'll be a resident from that point. That is quite a complex area because obviously it's sometimes it's quite vague, open to interpretation. But yeah, you're right. The ACO did put out some guidance and um, we, we're, we're helping out a few clients at the moment around that. Now let's assume that our friend, let's call him John or, or Bob, arrives in Australia with the intention of staying. Let's assume that is clear cut. And so now our friend John or Bob runs into a number of issues, correct? With respect to his US assets? Correct, yeah. On, on the yes. rebasing when they arrive in Australia. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I was I was I was quite happy just sort of sitting there listening. It was it was, oh. it was really quite nice. But, um, <laughs> no, that's right. So, are we? Is he John or is he Bob? Let's call him Bob. All right, Bob the Blob. So Bob's come back to to Australia and he's triggered Australian residency. So ordinarily, all of your non all of your assets, global assets that are not Australian land are basically entered into the tax system at their market value on that day. The reason being, obviously, once you've triggered Australian residency, subject to tax on your worldwide income. And so the starting point for that will be the date of date of entry. So any growth in those assets whilst you're an Australian resident would be, you know, potentially subject to CGT if they were sold. It does also, though, present a nice planning sort of opportunity for our people who are, for John, Bob, sorry, for Bob, who's returned home because, you know, if he has US property, that's one thing. But if he has a stock portfolio or ESS options, you know, they also potentially get rebased. So that's if it was shares, for example, that might present a unique opportunity. Let's say also assume Bob's not a US citizen or a green card holder. He's been over there on his E3. He's acquired, you know, substantial stock portfolio, comes home. Because of that market value rebasing, you know, they're 
that there may be an opportunity for him to offload some of that, uh, not only free from US tax, but also free or minimal Australian capital gains. So it's ordinary function of the law. It's not a, um, <laughs> it's not a tax avoidance scheme, but um, we see that, yeah. you know, it's just an opportunity for our clients inbound to just reconsider their holding structure, you know, from an asset protection point of view. I have two questions. The first one is, does the U.S. not have something similar to what we have, meaning a deemed disposal of assets when you seize residency? No, they, they do not. So, um, so basically, obviously, this is applying to non-U.S. citizens. So once you leave America, there's no exit tax in America. And this is where you can, there is some planning to be done, as Darren mentioned. So, you know, it's just say an Australian an E3 visa has been in America, has got some substantial you know employee shares or other stock that does get rebased to market value when they come to australia and once they're not a u.s resident there's no american tax on that sale which unless it's uh, u.s land so that's a, a a great sort of planning opportunity there yeah so the advice to australians moving to the u.s temporarily for five to ten years or so is basically buy stocks as soon as you arrive there and then Basically, don't sell it until you arrive in Australia, and then you can sell it any time after that, pretty much tax-free. Well, obviously, we can't generally uh, give advice to Bob. Uh, I would recommend Bob get some personal advice, but in theory, that's uh, conceptually how it would work, yeah. I mean, just on the exit tax too, there is obviously an exit tax if you do give up your US passport or your green card, which is really important. You know, if you have a US green card, and you, know, you come back to Australia to live and you've held it for more than eight years and your net worth over $2 million US dollars, there's an exit charge at that point, which can be significant and also very important from a US point of view to, to consider that if you're going to come to Australia and, and ditch your green card. Yes, and green card is almost any long-term visa to stay in America, correct? That's effectively right. Yeah, green card's are a long-term US visa. Yes. So if Bob stays in America for more than eight years, then he probably will be subject to a U.S. exit tax. But if he comes before the eight years, then he then he most likely won't have an exit tax. Just generally speaking. Generally speaking, that's correct. Exactly. Yes. And I guess um again we'll touch on this in some more detail, but it, it does create some issues for U.S. citizens and U.S. green card holders coming to Australia. Where again you get this mismatch, for example to say you sell an Australian property that may be exempt from tax in Australia under our main residence exemption, but it doesn't fall into the US exemption. So they might have an exempt gain in Australia, but because they're a US citizen or US green card holder, that gain is still fully taxable in the United States, you know, which can be a real disaster. And you've got issues like superannuation still that you have to be very careful of as an American taxpayer. You can't contribute to your super in Australia. And it's potentially taxable in Australia as well. Um, the PFIC issues, passive foreign investment companies, which say effectively if you have an interest in Australian ETFs or Australian mutual funds, they're also taxable to US green card holders and US citizens. So there are some of the real pitfalls we see for US citizens coming to Australia. So first to finish the topic of exit tax, while the US doesn't have an exit tax as long as you are under eight years, and while we in theory have a deemed disposal and hence an exit tax, there is this paragraph which we will discuss when we relocate from Australia to the US. But just to mention it, if you move from 
Australia back to the US, you most likely won't have an exit tax either because there is an exemption in Article 13, Paragraph 6. That basically just means you can just move the um, taxing rights to the US. That's yeah. exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's quite a misunderstood section, 13.6 of the treaty, because you're right, you know, obviously once you leave Australia, there is that exit tax that applies, but you can defer it. So normally when you defer that exit tax, um, if you weren't going to America, it would mean that that asset's still subject to Australian tax when you sell it. But when you go to America, if you sell it from America, um, you end up only paying tax in America on that capital gain, which can be quite advantageous given the US tax rates on capital gains are normally lower than Australia. That, yeah. you know, that's a, a real key planning point that um, clients would really think about, especially with cryptocurrency, for example. Like this, that's what we're seeing a lot of at the moment. You have a client with a, a very large crypto portfolio or even share portfolio with a large gain when they leave Australia. If they were to sell that crypto or the shares from the United States, then that gain's taxable only in America and not in Australia. So yeah, exactly right. As you said, does the US then tax the full capital gain, or do they only tax the capital gain from the market value at the time of returning to the US? So the US would tax. So if you defer the Australian exit tax, the US would tax the full capital gain yeah. on the original cost basis at their long-term rates so of fifteen percent plus any state tax that's applicable. And state tax again is the one to watch out for because even though the federal tax could be fifteen percent, if you're paying twelve percent in California, for example. That's a really high effective tax rate. If you go into Wyoming or, you know, one of the more, you know, <laughs> nicer states that haven't got state tax, <laughs> um, that obviously is helpful. That's something to think about. And now this is um, this is getting complex, right? But effectively, normally, if obviously you pay the exit tax when you leave Australia, you sort of, you pay the exit tax when you're outside the Australian tax net. If you elect to pay the exit tax when you leave Australia, under 13.5 of the treaty with America, America are meant to recognize the market value cost base when you move to America. So, you know, basically it makes sense if you think about it, it sort of aligns the treatment. So you pay the exit tax when you leave Australia on the market value at that time, you go to America, you get market value cost base when you enter America. That's, that, that one in particular, that section is very misunderstood by American advisors because they normally just take the original cost basis doing their capital gains calculations. So that one in particular is another sort of point to watch out for if you're going to pay the exit tax. So to basically come back to the start, Bob arrives. If he has been less than eight years, he didn't have an exit tax in the US. He arrives, his US assets are rebased at market value. And then any further capital gain will then be taxed in Australia when realized, but he will also still will have it included in his tax return in the US because he, oh no, actually he won't. If he's not a citizen. It be an American property. I mean, this is perhaps something we could chat about just quickly because obviously um, the US property gets rebased to market value when they come to Australia. But if they sell US property, it's still taxable in America. Yeah. Subject to the American primary residence exemption. Yes. And that's actually, that was my second question, Darren, when I interrupted you. And that was when you spoke about Bob's assets being rebased at the time of arrival, you said, except Australian land. And I mean, of course, you're talking about, I think it's called taxable Australian real property, correct? It's called TARP. Yes, yeah, taxable Australian 
property, it's easier just to make the reference to land, but it does include some other sort of complicated structures, you know, or like, for example, if a company owned land and you owned all the shares type of thing, then you're still taken to have, you know, an interest in the tap. So rather than sort of, you know, talk about that, we just simplify it a little bit and say, look, if you are an Australian resident and you own Australian land and you leave Australia, for example, nothing, there's no deemed disposal of that because as Brad has said um, real property in the country where it is will always be taxable first in that country. So, you know, it doesn't come into the same exit regime. And similarly, when you come back to Australia, if you still own that land, there's no rebasing. It's just, you just come back and, (laughs) you know, it's taken to have been, you know, yours for the whole time. Now that's where the exception lies. Like Brad has just said, there's a, potential mismatch between the exemptions on primary residence relief between how the US treats theirs and how Australian would treat it. And we see that a lot where there's a returning Australian from the US, but they've retained a US property. They don't yet have an Australian main residence, for example. So they they look to, to sell that US property. They'll get a, potentially get a full main residence exemption here in Australia under our rules. But given the US complications, there may be some sticking uh, US tax that needs to be to be paid. So um, it's just a, a watch out. The other the other thing we see quite often is when you've come home, you still might have a financial obligation to, to pay the mortgage that's on the home. And that instantly creates foreign exchange movements, which, you know, you can imagine if you're making monthly repayments of principal and interest against a US dollar mortgage from Australia, (laughs) it can be quite a confusing calculation. You can quite easily end up in a circumstance where you may have sold the property and got a, a federal tax exemption, but because the way the currency has moved whilst you've paid off the loan, you could very well end up with a foreign exchange gain <laughs> or loss, uh, depending on how the currency has fluctuated over the time that you've owned it. And yeah. It's just a, it's just a watch out for that, and yeah. we've seen it with our clients. <laughs> yeah, I think the other important point to recognise too is, um, you know, when a client does have American property and come to Australia, they can still apply the Australian main residence exemption to exempt the gain as well. So that's also often missed sometimes. So. You know, if they come to Australia, the property is obviously rebased at that time for its market value. If there was, in fact, a gain on the US property after they lived in Australia, they can elect to apply the Australian exemption on the main residence to exempt it in Australia as well for up to six years. So you can still get the exemption for up to six years from when the property was first rented in the US. Assuming they haven't got another main residence in Australia, obviously you can't claim the main residence, main residence exemption twice oh, at yes. the same time, but you can still, you've got that six year period where you can still utilize it, which is really effective. So, you know, you come to Australia, you could rent out the US property for, you know, two or three years and still utilize the Australian exemption when you sell it. Yes, because the main residence exemption applies if you are an Australian tax resident at the time of sale. It doesn't matter if you weren't a an Australian tax resident for some time in between, 
as long as you're yeah. So that basically means sell your. Uh, now, if Bob sold his main residence in the U.S. before he came to Australia, then it wouldn't affect Australia anyway because he wasn't a tax resident before he arrived back. So then the whole thing would be in the U.S. Whereas if he sells it, if he's still if he's back in Aust in Australia. We, you have the main residence exemption and the tax treatment in the U.S. is the same if, if he's no longer a U.S. tax resident at the time he sells? Fantastic question. So in America, you can treat a property as your primary residence if you live in it for two out of the last five years. And that exempts the first half million dollars of the, of the capital gain. So if you're outside that two or five-year period, the property is taxable in America. And that's another pitfall we see. So like, if you're outside that two or five year window and you don't get the American exemption on your primary residence. So it's really important that that's why you need that planning element when you are coming to Australia to think about, you know, if you're going to sell it, make sure you really sell it in that, in that window. So you satisfy that two out of five year window in America. So as long as you sell within two to five years, you do get the main residence exemption or you don't? You do. So you, you had to live in the property for two years out of the last five years. Okay. Yeah. So essentially it's a three-year horizon yeah. from yeah. moving back to Australia, whereas the Australian system says you could take six. So there's a timing mismatch. And if you're unaware, you know, you, know, you may be trying to strive for a full exemption under the six-year rule in Australia. Yeah, but you can completely miss the point of losing the main residence exemption in the US, which obviously is not an ideal outcome from a tax point of view. Good. So that means advice to all the Bobs coming back to Australia is sell your US main residence within three years of returning. Well, more like a watch out rather than I think, advice, yeah. I think. Yes. If, if you okay. want to sell it, <laughs> sell it within three years. Exactly. Yeah. Welcome back. So the first big question when you return from the US to Australia is CGT. And to be more exact, three CGT issues to look out for. The first one is possible US exit tax on your US assets. The US calls this repatriation tax. So repatriation tax applies if you relinquish your citizenship or your green card and exceed certain assets and income thresholds or your tax filings for the past five years are not up to date. So before you give up on your US citizenship, always make sure your tax filings are up to date. So if any of this doesn't apply to you, for example, because you're not a US citizen and you didn't have a green card to start with, or your assets and income are below the thresholds and your tax filings are up to date, then you don't need to worry about repatriation tax or exit tax in general. So unless you qualify for repatriation tax, your assets will leave the US tax free. So that is good news. The second thing to worry about when you relocate from the US back to Australia is the adjustment of your asset cost basis to market value in Australia. But that is really just an admin task and doesn't affect you until you sell those assets. Make sure you collect evidence to prove the market value of your assets at the time of entry. The good news is that if US repatriation tax doesn't apply, then you get the entire capital gain from purchase to the date of your return to Australia. You get that entire capital gain tax-free. And the third thing to look out for is the sale of your main residence either in Australia or the US. And this can get 
quite confusing. So let's say we have two Australians returning from the US back to Australia. Sally bought her house in the US and Sheila only rented in the US and has her main residence in Australia. So let's start with Sally and her main residence in the US. If Sally sells her main residence before she leaves the US, then no CGT in Australia since the land is neither taxable Australian real property, so TARP. So the land is neither TARP nor is Sally a tax resident. So Australia has nothing to do with Sally's home in the US. If Sally sells her US home after returning to Australia, then she still can claim the US principal residence exemption in the US as long as she sells within three years under the two and five year rule. And in Australia, Sally can claim the main residence exemption under the six year absence rule. So the important point is that in the US, Sally only has a three year window to sell. Now to Sheila, who kept her Australian home and just rented in the US while she was there. If Sheila sells her home while still in the US, then she will pay full CGT since she's not an Australian tax resident, but the property is TARP. And as you know, you only qualify for the main residence exemption in Australia if you're an Australian tax resident at the time of sale. So if Sheila sells before she comes back, Australian CGT. If Sheila sells her Australian home after she comes back, no CGT under the main residence exemption unless Sheila rented her Australian home out for more than six years, so exceeded the six-year absence rule. If she had kept it empty while away, no CGT. So that was the first part about relocating from the US back to Australia. In the next episode, we continue with another aspect you need to consider and that is 401k retirement plans but quickly before you leave I wanted to play you a soundbite that I recorded before we started the interview I had asked Bradley Murphy and Darren Catherine how they found their niche how they found their niche of international tax both at Deloitte before we started the firm in 2019 we both worked in, in London with you know, KPMG for a number of years. And then I worked with Qantas, heading up the international team there and spent some time in America as well. So we both had quite a good grounding of international tax with different systems, you know, mainly obviously Australia, the US and the UK and as they interact. So we yeah saw a bit of a gap or a niche in the market, if you like, and we're both lawyers too. So we, we thought having that dual law accounting qualification was quite unique and it's proven to be true. It's just, I think, an area of real you know, demand and there's not many providers doing that international market that well or that specialised. So, yeah, we have, especially the UK and US, we found those two channels to be very much in demand. So there's a, a need for a boutique service provider that's doing integrated US, UK and Australian advice. You very much remind me of Asana. Are you aware of Asana Advisors with Peter Harper? It's, it's funny you mentioned that. I used to work with Peter in London. So um, I know Peter very well. And uh, yes, it, it, Peter does that. He does um, US-Australian tax on the, on the legal side. He does more you know, US market entry. So I'm more of a focus on Australian companies you know, moving into America. But um, I know Peter very well. Yeah, as does Darren as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so your focus is not so much entry into the US, but more? Yeah, so we do all international taxes, you know, that has an Australian angle. So we focus on 
international tax and expat taxes, but um, biggest market is definitely the Australian US market, followed by the Australian UK market. The US market is big just because the US is a very big country or because the US has this worldwide tax residency and hence anybody who has a US citizen needs to dance in both systems and hence needs more help? Or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. It's a good question. Mm. I think um, first off, the, the movement between the two countries is you know quite strong. There's a lot of you know, expats that move to America and US citizens coming to Australia on the individual side, but also companies that are expanding into America or you know into Australia. I mean, but the biggest issue is probably the complexity with the tax systems, especially with America. It's obviously a very complex tax system as it relates to Australia. And there are some unique mismatches there, you know, in terms of the treatment of Australian super, for example, US retirement funds, you know, US LLCs, how they're treated in Australia, um, which we can touch on later on. But there, it's quite unique in that it's a very complex interaction between the two countries. And there's some mismatches there in the US-Australian treaty that does cause a lot of pain uh, if there's not <laughs> adequate planning. You, you'd be obviously aware too, US citizens or green card holders have that worldwide obligation to continue to report in America. So even if they're residing in Australia, as we all know, US citizens still have to report their income to the IRS. It does create some issues too. Both Darren and me are also dual qualified in the UK as well. So we're UK lawyers as well. Oh, that's so impressive. So you're also UK tax agents. Not tax agents, just lawyers. So we don't don't file returns in the UK, but we give UK advice. How much of your work is outbound? So Australians going overseas or is it inbound foreigners coming into Australia? It's probably half-half at the moment. It was obviously during COVID, 90% inbound. <laughs> maybe 1% out there, <laughs> but um, certainly at the moment, it's sort of reverted back to the norm of 50-50. In the next episode, episode 349, let's talk about how Australia taxes US retirement plans, so-called 401ks, when you move from the US back to Australia. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.